We're in the book of uh, Hebrews chapter 13 this morning, book of Hebrews chapter 13. We're continuing our study through uh, the book of Hebrews. We are nearing completion, um, but this morning we are in Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verses 7 through 14 this morning. So I'd invite you uh, to turn there if you would like to do so, Hebrews 13, 7 through 14. I'll be reading this morning from the English Standard Version. It says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray this morning that it would penetrate our hearts and our lives, that it would be applied to us, that, Lord, we would hear it, that we would live it out. And, Lord, that we'd be a testimony to those around us. I pray for those here this morning that need to hear grace, that they would hear grace. For those that need to hear a message, perhaps, of rebuke, that they would hear rebuke. For those that are here this morning that need to hear salvation, that they would hear that Jesus Christ is our salvation. I pray these things in the name of Jesus and he alone. Amen. You know, as I read this passage of scripture this week, I was really tempted to stop at verse 7 and preach a sermon on that, mainly because um, as I read this passage, I found myself somewhat scratching my head to see how all this was fitting together. And I thought, well, I could stop at verse 7 and preach on church leadership and the more I studied that, uh, the more I realized that verse 7 is actually talking about leaders that have passed away. And I thought, well, I don't want anybody wanting me to pass away. So, um, so I didn't stop there. Um, but uh, there, there doesn't seem to be a theme. It starts off with remember your leaders and tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today. And forever then tells us not to be led away by false teaching. Then it goes back to comparing the Old Testament sacrificial system with Jesus who has been sanctified by uh, or who has sanctified his people by his blood. And then he talks about heaven. But I read it and then I reread it and then I read it some more. And I, I came to the conclusion that this is this passage is really revealing to us how it is that we avoid false teaching and that Jesus is the remedy to false teaching remember that the whole chapter um, in Hebrews chapter 13 is practical in nature that's really what the focus has been on does uh, does our theology affect our practice verse 1 we let other or, or we let um Love for others continue. Verse 2, we show hospitality to strangers. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Verse 7, remember your leaders. All this is putting things into practice. And now the author is concerned that the readers of this letter are going to be led away by diverse and strange teachings, he says. Which would include a return for them to Judaism. And so to battle against 
that he first tells them that they need to remember the leaders who had spoken the word of God to them because Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is the living word of God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Are you tracking with me so far what he's doing? So remember your leaders who spoke the word, which is actually Jesus. And then he says this, that his grace and his sacrificial death on the cross are central to sound doctrine. And the death of Jesus on the cross is our altar. It's superior to and replaces the Jewish altar that was in the temple. And for this reason, we must turn from Judaism or any other religion and we must go to Christ. Now, here's the thing. If our faith leads us into hardship or rejection or persecution or reproach or death or whatever it is, fill in the blank. If our faith leads us there, then we must keep in mind that we are not living for this life because here we don't have a lasting city. But we are living for the reward that he promised, which is the city that is to come. So that is what I understand these verses, that if, if we're going to keep from false teaching, which runs rampant, we must remember our leaders and imitate their faith. We must remember our Savior and his sacrificial death. And we must hold to the promise of heaven. So let's break this passage down this morning. First, I want us to see the dangers of false teaching. In verse 9, we have this warning to... To not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. Listen, we live in a time of diverse and strange teachings. We live in a time where, where Christians have minimized the importance of sound doctrine. Because they say things like this, well, doctrine is divisive. And sure, that may sound catchy. You used two D's in a row, doctrine is divisive. And it may sound nice, but it's not biblical. Furthermore, in Christian circles, there are those that will say doctrine only causes division. And that it goes against the command to love one another. So what happens is we hear things like, well, we need to find common ground and come together where we can agree rather than divide over doctrine where we disagree. So when... Speaking of doctrine in particular, many would say there is no absolute truth. That certain beliefs are relative. So we can't say that one way is right and another wrong because, well, that would be intolerant or prideful. Trust me, you will get all kinds of labels slapped on you if you stand for truth without wavering. You will. Some, some might call you a fundy. And that means that you're a fundamentalist. Or they will say that you are divisive. Or they will say that you're a separatist. Whenever we make a claim that we say is universally true for all people at all times, well, according to our culture, you can't make such a claim. The culture views religion and spiritual views as a preference, not a truth. So what happens is we end up with this hodgepodge of different Beliefs all rolled into one, and we really uh, rarely do we ever think about it. Rarely do we ever think about what do I really believe? Which is why Christians will say things like this. And if you've said this, I don't know it, so I'm not like attacking you or pointing you out or anything like that. These are some things that I have heard Christians say. Well, Another angel got their wings today. They'll say that when someone dies. That's not truth. No one becomes an angel when they die. You don't die and become an angel. That's not the way things work. But we'll say that not even caring about whether that's doctrinally true or correct. Or we will say, well, karma's a bad thing. Christians will say that. In fact, I was talking to somebody this week who said that very thing in the way in our church, somebody else that's a leader. They said about karma on the phone to me. Karma is not Christianity. Or we'll say when I come back, I'm going to come back and 
haunt so-and-so. No, you're not. We, we will read books with heresy in them and not even bat an eye. And we'll think it's okay because, well, it's, it's, it's just a preference. Truth has become a preference and not truth. I like to drink coffee and you don't like to drink co coffee. Neither one is right or wrong. That's what we've done with truth. In a recent study, George Barna found that 59% of Christians believe in absolute truth. 59%. That's it. Believe in absolute truth. The number drops way off in non-Christians because only 15% of non-Christians believe in absolute truth. And data just released by Ligonier Ministries, 32% of evangelicals say their religious belief is not absolute truth. 32% of evangelical Christians, so that's people in here will say their belief is not absolute truth and data and, and that data goes on further to, to talk about other things that I'm, I'm going to reference later on listen if only 59% of Christians believe in absolute truth and 68% of evangelicals believe their religious beliefs are, are only 68 believe their religious beliefs are absolute guess what how are we going to avoid false teaching if we don't believe that our teaching is absolute? However, all through Scripture, we're warned against false teaching. All through Scripture, Jesus said to beware of false prophets who are disguised in sheep's clothing but are really ravenous wolves. Paul told the church at Ephesus to be on guard against savage uh, wolves. And then he said uh, in verse 30, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. He warned the church in Galatia that men were preaching a false gospel and the church in Colossus that, that should, that they should not, uh, that should not, they should not be taken captive by philosophy and those who impose rules about food and drink an observance of certain days. All through Paul's pastoral epistles, he warns against false teaching and mentions sound doctrine. Though I'm certain the Hebrew church knew exactly what the author was referencing here in this passage of Scripture when he talks about food and that sort of thing. We don't really know. It could have been the Jewish regulations about clean and unclean foods or, or something relating to the sacrificial system. When they would eat the Passover lamb, we don't know. However, the indication is that some were already being led away by the false teaching. And they needed to stop. Whatever the issue was, it contradicted the theological unity of the gospel message. So it had to be avoided. There is danger in false teaching. And I believe part of that's brought out when the author says this. He uses these words strange or uses the word strange. And I think it's because often we're attracted to strange. Because strange isn't normal. It's different. But it will lead us astray. And we must understand that the dangers of false teaching aren't new. It's not like some new thing. Satan has always infiltrated the church with false teaching. And if it's left unchecked, it will lead people away from God's grace in Jesus Christ. If we buy into what the culture is selling, making that doctrinal truth and, and personal, um, and saying, well, it's just personal preference is not important. We're saying, well, well, truth isn't important. Then we're in danger of being led away. Theological variation when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ is not something that you should embrace. So we must not deny how vital sound doctrine is. We might as well paint a target on our back because the enemy will use our lack of doctrine to attack us. And so we must understand, first of all, the dangers of false teaching. Secondly, to avoid false teaching, we must remember and imitate the faith of our leaders. Let me read verse 7 again from this passage of scripture. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. 
Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Hebrews 13, 7. In verse 7, the leaders the author is referencing, as I've already said, they're those who have died. Later, in verses 17 and 24, he will reference those leaders who are current leaders. We'll look at that in another message. They're told to consider their way of life, so they are to closely inspect the outcome of these leaders' way of life. The implication is they have successfully finished the race, so remember these men that led you in the past, and remember how well they lived, and remember their faith, and imitate their faith, which implies both their, their faith and their conduct. However, as we've repeatedly seen, faith in Christ is the basis for Christian conduct. Christian behavior is not this simple outward conformity in our lives to some, some rules and regulations, but rather faith in Christ leads someone to follow Christ, thereby revealing itself in our conduct. This is what Paul said. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love in Galatians 5, 6. These men, it says, spoke the word of God to the people, to the Hebrews. The word of God. The word of God is the only source for sound teaching. However, we live in a day when too few pastors devote themselves to the teaching of God's word in any systematic way whatsoever. What we see is a lot of churches trying to reach the unchurched, and the first thing they abandon is the teaching of the word of God verse by verse because they're afraid that difficult doctrines or teaching will offend someone or it won't be as entertaining. And so the aim of the service is to give the customer, which is you, by the way, you're the customer. We got to give the customer what they want. And so the church becomes like a grocery store or a restaurant or whatever we want to call it, where we seek to give customers what they want. You're the customer. I need to give you what you want. Instead of what you need. You see the problem there? But that's what's going on. So there'll be a nice little topical sermon. Something like five ways you can be happy or whatever. Any other thing we can think of. Cool little topic. That people want to hear. We won't talk about sin or judgment or anything that is controversial. Honestly, in many cases, the messages you hear could come out of a magazine rather than the Bible. Any teaching that you hear, you should always ask the question. I don't care who the teacher is. You should always be asking, does this message explain the scripture in its context and apply it to my life. That's what you should be asking. Does this message explain that scripture in its context and apply it to my life? That should be the question. Let me give you one other thing out of verse seven that I believe is beneficial to us and that we need to learn from. Like I said, I don't, I don't believe that this verse is speaking of leaders that are currently leading, but of those that have already led and have gone on to be with the Lord. With that in mind, let me encourage you to take time to read things that godly Christians have wrote who have gone on to be with the Lord. Let me encourage you to read biographies of godly Christians. Let me encourage you to read commentaries by godly Christians that have gone on to be with the Lord. I'm not Speaking here of someone who claimed to be a Christian that was an actor or a sports whatever, there's nothing wrong with reading those things, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm speaking of great men of God who lived their faith. Read about the reformers. Read about John Knox and 
Martin Luther and John Calvin and William Tyndale and Heinrich Bullinger. Read about great preachers who proclaim God's truth in previous times like Charles Spurgeon and Jonathan Edwards and John Owen and John Huss. Read about missionaries who braved all sorts of conditions to take the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth like William Carey and Adonai Judson and David Livingston and Hudson Taylor and Lottie Moon and Amy Carmichael and Jim Elliott. Read about those people that led and went on to be with the Lord. Read about their faith in what they did. That's what it's saying. Remember your leaders. Remember those people that went on to be with the Lord. That they lived out their faith. Read about their faith and copy it. And see what they did. And see what their secret was. Remember those that have gone on before. We read about their great faith and we imitate it. If we want to avoid false teaching. Number three. To avoid false teaching, we must remember our Savior and his sacrificial death. When we come to verse 8, it seems odd. We have had all this practical stuff. And then he says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then he goes right back to practical things. Don't be led astray. However, I believe there is a point here. You see, godly teachers come and they go. But not Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what we see is that Jesus is infinitely reliable because he is forever unchangeable. Jesus is infinitely reliable because he is forever unchangeable. Verse 8 is an explicit declaration to everyone about who Jesus is. He's saying in verse 8, you can rely on Jesus for all time in all situations because Jesus will never change. We get sometimes enamored with a great teacher and when they, and when they die or if they fail, we're, we're devastated. The author is not attempting to diminish down teachers, but he's saying, listen, great teachers are going to come and go, but we must focus on, on who their teaching is about. The one who is unchangeable. After that teacher goes, Jesus remains. You can rely on Jesus because Jesus will never change on you. You see, friends, they will change. They will let you down. Your loved ones that you hold dear, they will change. There's going to be times that they disappoint you because people change. People let us down, but not Jesus. Jesus will never change from who he is, which is our Savior. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Everything in your life is changeable. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But you can always count on Jesus. This is huge for our life because it makes it clear that Jesus is the key for you to live the Christian life. There is not one single problem that you would face in your life today that's bigger than Jesus. If you have a problem that seems bigger than Jesus, or if you have a desire that is greater than Jesus, then you are not in a good place because Jesus can conquer any problem that you face, and Jesus is better than any desire that you have. If you have a problem that's too big in your life, then your Jesus is too small. And if there is a desire in your heart greater than your love for Jesus, then you have a problem because there is nothing that is better than Jesus. I just want to say to you that if, you, if your love for Jesus has grown cold, and if your circumstance or your problems seem bigger than Jesus today, if your desires seem more satisfying than Jesus I want you to know that Jesus satisfies. And I want to say to you this morning what verse 13 says. Go to Jesus. And keep on going to Jesus. And keep on going to Jesus until you recognize that Jesus is bigger than your problems. 
And Jesus is the giver of hope. And that Jesus is better than anything that you could possibly desire because he is infinitely reliable because Jesus is forever unchangeable. Now let's see that not only that, but sound doctrine will focus on God's grace through Christ. If we look again at verse 9, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. You see, false teaching will always twist God's grace. The Judaizers did this. They said that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. So they were adding to the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone. Paul made it clear that to add anything to the gospel of God's grace is to ensure eternal damnation. If we try to add human works or merit or indulgences or penance or anything to Christ's death on a cross as necessary for salvation, it is to commit heresy. This is what the reformers clearly taught. That salvation is by grace alone, sola gratia. Through faith alone, sola fide. In Christ alone, solus Christus. We add nothing to God's all-sufficient grace. You can add nothing to it. Or in the words of Jonathan Edwards, we add nothing but the sin that made it necessary. Listen carefully. Any doctrine that maligns or twists or adds to God's grace is not sufficient. We struggle greatly with this because we are fallen creatures. There are even some supposed evangelicals today who still think that they contribute to their salvation. In fact, 7% say that they contribute to their salvation. Listen closely. God's grace means that he chose us totally apart from anything and in spite of anything that is in us. That's God's grace. If you are here as a believer this morning, God's grace means that he chose you apart from anything that is in you and in spite of you. That is God's grace. Or it's not grace. Romans 11, 5 and 6 make it abundantly clear. Furthermore, even saving faith is a gift from God. Philippians 1, 29. Listen to Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. The author of Hebrews is showing that Christ in his sacrificial death, his reliability and unchanging nature and his grace are central to sound doctrine. So let's continue. As we look at Jesus' death on the cross is central to our faith. As we look at verses 10 through 12. They can prove difficult to understand. But we, as we look, we see that they're clearly talking about the Old Testament ritual system. The author is repeating for us what he's already said to us, what he's already made clear throughout the book of Hebrews, and that is Christ is superior to the Old Testament Jewish sacrificial system because Jesus fulfilled it. Look at what he says. He says, we have an altar for which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So in the Old Testament, one of the ways that the pastor at First Baptist Church in Washington got paid was that you brought in your animal sacrifice and then he gets to take part of the meat of that sacrifice. So the blood was used in the temple ritual for the sprinkling of blood. That was a joke, by the way. First Baptist Church wasn't around in the Old Testament. But anyway, so he takes the, the, the blood... And that temple ritual for the, for the sprinkling of the blood. And the rest of the body is destroyed. But, but he got to keep some, the priest got to keep some of the best meat from those animals. And he used that to feed his family. So the priest got the prime rib. So he got the best. And he used it to feed the family. And so the author is thinking back to the temple sacrificial system. And the priests who served there got to eat the choice meat that was offered in the ritual. 
Now here's what is cool. He's thinking back to that and he calls us. He says we are, we are the priests. We have an altar from which those who serve in the tent have no right to eat. What he is saying is this. You are the kingdom of priests. And just like the priests got to eat from the table, the choice meats, you have the altar that gives you the nourishment. And then he's going to tell us about it. And so he does in verse 11. He's building to his point, which is the atonement of Christ for his people. It says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, this is critical because in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 22 and following, we read about the atonement offering that was not allowed to be consumed by the priest. So the atonement sacrifice had to be completely consumed outside the camp by fire. So in Leviticus chapter 16, we have it speaking of the atonement offering, and there's also speaking about the scapegoat. So the priest would place his hands on the scapegoat's head, symbolically placing the sins of Israel on that goat, and then it was taken outside the camp, and that scapegoat was sent into the wilderness. And what is that a picture of? The sins of God's people being placed on the scapegoat and sent into the wilderness so that he bears the sins, that scapegoat bears the sins of the people far away outside the camp. And the atonement offering, the blood of that animal that was killed is sprinkled on the people and on the altar and the whole animal is taken then outside the camp and burned. The picture is God dealing with his people's sins by riddance, by getting rid of them, and by propitiation, by substitution, by removal, and by exile. He takes them away and he casts them away by appeasement of the wrath of God. The scapegoat is, is showing that God's people's sins meant that they deserve removal from his presence. And the burning of the atonement is a picture that God's will deal with sin by pouring the punishment that sin deserves by pouring out his wrath. And here's what the author is saying in this beautiful picture. Jesus fulfills what is set forth in that atonement ritual by his death on the cross. You see, Jesus suffered outside the gate. He shed his blood in order to sanctify his people. He's saying Jesus is the scapegoat. Well, what a picture. Jesus is a scapegoat. He suffers outside the camp. But Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. He shed his own blood outside the camp valid for the people. Jesus is your altar. Jesus supplies everything that you need from his atoning work. Jesus is that song that we used to sing. He is your all in all. Just like that scapegoat sent into the wilderness. Jesus is crucified outside the gates where criminals were punished. Listen, outside the camp is a picture of separation from God and his people. It is this way throughout scripture. When Jesus was on the cross, what did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the abandonment. The isolation. The loneliness of that person that gets banished outside the camp. That's why the author is giving this emphasis that Jesus suffered outside the gate. He bore our sins on Calvary. We could never bear our own sins. We could never, ever survive the wrath of God. But Jesus did. And he rose again. And in so doing, he bore the penalty that we deserve. That's the picture of baptism, folks. We couldn't pay the price, but Jesus did. And he died and was buried just like we are to die and be buried going into the water. And he rose again just like we 
come out of the water. He rose again. And we come up for a new type of life. That is the point. Jesus' death on the cross is central to our faith. And it is an absolute perversion to offer the body and the blood as a perpetual sacrifice. To say we sacrifice Jesus over and over and over and over and over again as in the Roman Catholic Mass. Communion is a commemoration of the once and for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross as clearly played out in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 10 and 14. He does not need to be offered again on an altar and our feeding on him is spiritual not physical and by faith we trust in the completed and finished work on the cross. Fourthly, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. The author says, Let's, let us go outside, or let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Right? Let us go bear some reproach. Sounds like we tell everyone who wants to know Christ as Savior. Somebody says, I, I want to know Christ as Savior. Great, let's go bear some reproach. You see the original reader. They knew exactly what this meant. You must leave Judaism and follow Jesus. You don't get to hang on to your old religion. Just add Jesus to the mix. You have to leave the old. You have to turn exclusively to Jesus Christ. Even if it means suffering reproach. Today if you go to Jesus. There will be people that think you're a fool. If you live truly live out your faith. You will bear reproach. Well, you're just a zealot. You're one of those Jesus people. You're a Jesus freak. You're a fanatic. You're a Bible thumper. You're a blah, blah, fill in the blank. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. <gasps> Foolishness. A few verses later, he says this, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the G Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. People are not offended when the cross is removed from Christianity. You know why? Because everyone can support doing good. Everyone can support that. Hey, let's go do some good. Everybody says, hey, yeah, let's go do that. Everyone can support loving others. That is not offensive. We just got to love these people. Yeah, you're right. But the cross confronts our pride. Sinners don't want to hear about the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But without the cross, there is no salvation. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. With the cross outside the camp of man's religions, of works, there is no salvation. Jesus demands our allegiance to him. And if we do not go to Jesus, well, to be blunt, we go to hell. Because he is the only way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. Well, that's awful narrow-minded. You're right. I also said, the way is narrow. So we've seen the danger of false teachings. To avoid it, we must remember and imitate the faith of our leaders. However, the main remedy is Jesus in his sacrificial death but there is one more remedy here for us to look at and that's this 
to avoid false teaching, hold firm to the hope of heaven. To avoid false teaching, hold firm to the hope of heaven. Verse 13 is connected with verse 14. If we bear their reproach for the sake of Christ, then we need to remember that this is not our home, but heaven is our home. That's the point. Here, we don't have a lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The Jews, they boasted that Jerusalem was the center of the earth for worshiping God. All earthly cities are temporary. It will eventually fade into the past, and so will everything in that city. No earthly city continues forever. However, the author of Hebrews is saying the city we seek is not on this earth. And that's the whole point. We hold firm to the hope of heaven. There's all kinds of false teaching that puts a focus, puts our focus on the present and what we can gain in this life. There's all kinds of false teachings that, that have some sort of warped view of heaven. For example, in Islam, suicide bombers are considered martyrs and they will inherit a better life in heaven with beautiful virgins to satisfy their lusts. That's a warped view of heaven. Jehovah's Witness and Mormons also have false views of heaven. Others will seek the good life here and now. This is known as the health and wealth gospel, which is heresy. In the gospel, God wants to bless you with, with all kinds of physical and spiritual blessing here and now. Just send your money and you will get your blessing. It's heresy. Biblical Christianity offers peace and joy of knowing God here and now, but also focuses on the hope of heaven. We can rejoice that our sins are forgiven. We can enjoy everything that God has provided for us in this life. The anticipation of heaven should make us set our affections on the things above. When it says to us that we seek the city that is to come, it does not mean that we are searching for the unknown. It means that we are endeavoring to obtain it. It means that we are following the narrow way which leads to heaven. It means that our eyes are fixed on heaven and that is reflected in our lives. We are eternally minded. John Owen said this, and God hath prepared a city of rest for us. So it is our duty continually to endeavor the attainment of it. And the way of his appointment. The main business of believers in this world. Is to diligently seek after the attainments of eternal rest with God. And this is the character whereby they may be known. John Owen said that when, when our eyes are fixed to heaven. That's the character by which we are known as Christians. Paul said, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, then we are all men most pitied. So we must hold firm to the hope of heaven that one day we will be with the risen Christ. And hope will keep us from false teaching. Is that your hope? Do you hold on to the hope of heaven this morning? Let me wrap this up by saying this. Sound doctrine is always based on the word of God. Always. Not on the opinions of man. I hear a lot of times when people are talking about doctrine, they will say, well, that's just one person's opinion. Or that's just, I don't, I don't follow opinion of man. I follow God's word. Well, if that man's opinion is based in God's word, then that's what we follow. If it can't be proven by scripture, then it's not sound doctrine. If what you're holding to can't be, if you can't take the Bible and prove it, it's not sound doctrine. It's just your opinion. Sound doctrine always centers on and exalts Jesus Christ, who is unchanging. It always accurately portrays God's grace for salvation and not human works. It looks to the death of Christ for 
our sins. Sound doctrine will separate from everything that does not exalt Jesus Christ and will glorify in the reproach of the cross. And finally, sound doctrine will hold firm to the hope of heaven and its rewards, not the rewards of this life. And you say, Pastor, is this important? Why do we have a message devoted to doctrine? Well, because Scripture thinks it's essential. Look at Paul's writings and how often he focuses on doctrine. It is important because, to be honest, for far too long, many Christians have been ignorant of doctrine. Let me give you an example. 36% of evangelical Christians say God accepts the worship of all religions. 36%. It doesn't matter what religion you are. He accepts the worship of all religions. A whopping 59% of evangelical Christians Think that Jesus is the first and greatest created being. 59% that Jesus is the first and greatest created being. That's a heresy called Arianism. Condemned. 20% believe. People are good by nature. 20% of evangelical Christians say, well, people are good by nature. 30% believe the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Only 30%. That's a pretty high number. So 30 out of 100 say the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. All sin deserves eternal damnation. Only 71% believe hell is real. 17% believe gender identity is a choice. 72% believe faith in Christ alone saves them. Only 87% believe God is perfect. So 13% of evangelical Christians believe God is not perfect. Then he's not God. The stats make it clear that we need to know why we believe what we believe. And that we need to know what it is that we believe in the first place. So yes, a message like this is vital. Because it's not being proclaimed. Because people just pick up their Bible and they read whatever they want into the scripture. Or they hear somebody that they think is some great famous preacher that is teaching heresy. Now let me be clear. Some people would say, well, you need to read up on something and know all about it before you can decide if it's good or bad. They say, well, well you can't say that that thing is bad and not know everything about it. It's like those people that say, well, how do you know unless you've tried it? How would you know taking drugs is bad unless you've tried it? That's baloney. <laughs> you don't need to know everything about it to decide if it's good or bad, especially with the religion. So I say that's false. Listen, one time my wife went out and bought me some, some protein shakes. When we lived in Pennsylvania, we had this, this discount store. They sold like bent cans and dented up cans and stuff. And you could buy stuff really cheap there. Okay. So I was working out pretty heavily then. And, and my wife, being the great wife that she is, goes out and buys me some protein shakes. And I had just finished my P90X workout. And I walked into the bathroom with my protein shake because that's what good guys do after they work out they got to drink their protein and I opened that thing up and I took a big drink of it and I swallowed just a little bit and I went <gasps> all over the bathroom mirror 
It was rotten. It was spoiled. I didn't have to drink the whole protein shake to know it was spoiled. I just had to taste a little bit of it. You don't need to read everything about something to know it's bad. What does it say about Jesus? What does it say about salvation? What does it say about heaven? If it proclaims that Jesus Christ as the eternal God in the flesh and that faith in him is the only way to salvation, that's a good start. There may be disagreements in smaller areas, but those things have to be clear. So do not be led away by some sort of false teaching because you refuse to be on guard, Christian. Don't be led away because you think it's good enough to come in and just hear a sermon every once in a while. Don't be led away by false teaching and therefore condemn your soul to hell are you guarding yourself against the dangers of false teaching are you remembering and imitating the faith of past leaders are you focused on the savior and his sacrificial death have you gone to jesus do you know him as your personal savior and are you holding firm to the hope of heaven in your life you doing that this morning If you say, Pastor, no, I'm not doing that. Then I would challenge you here in a moment. We're going to sing a song. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to come up here and pray. Maybe you'd like me to pray with you. I'd be willing to do that. Maybe there's some some struggles that, that you're going through in your life. That for some reason you have it stuck in your head that that problem is bigger than Jesus. Maybe you're not focused on his sacrificial death. Have you gone to Jesus? Do you know him as your personal savior? Do you hold firm to the hope of heaven? If the Lord's spoken to you, I want to give you the chance to respond. So we're going we're gonna to sing a song and give you that opportunity this morning. And after that, we will have a baby dedication. I guess I should call it infant dedication. But, but I just want to give you a chance to respond to God's word this morning. Let's pray.